right. Everyone turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 17. <clears throat> so we've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together, as you know. And today we're at chapter 17, verse 24 through 27. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you so much for this time and your word. And God, we know that we need your help. Lord, we can be so weak. We are so weak, Lord, and we can be so foolish at times. And have our minds set on so many different things, Lord. And miss this one thing, Lord, to gaze upon your beauty, to sit at your feet, to inquire in your temple, to be still and know that you're God. Lord, please help us to do those things this morning. God, I pray that you, I pray, Lord, that you would rid us of distractions and sins, God, that keep us from hearing your word, God. Deal with our pride, Lord. Put away our pride our unbelief, our selfishness, Lord. And I pray, God, that right now you would incline our hearts to hear your word. Make us a humble people that tremble at your word, ready to be taught. God, we commit this time to you. Help us to see Christ in this text of scripture and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in chapter 17, verse 24 through 27, which is a story about Jesus miraculously paying his taxes. Um, and Matthew is the only one that records this. So we don't have this in Mark or Luke or John, uh, which... We don't know why. Maybe that's because Matthew was a tax collector and this really stood out to him. Jesus paying his taxes here. Um, but it really is some beautiful stuff. And there's, it's easy to kind of read this surface level and miss some really beautiful, beautiful things that are happening in this text of Scripture. So I want to encourage you to lean in. Uh, there's things here in this text where Jesus is revealing uh, something about himself, his identity as the Son of God. And he's revealing something about his followers, their identity as children of the living God. And then we're getting some, um, some pretty sweet counsel here, or an example from Jesus of how people like us that are, that are really not of this world, how do we live in this world in a way that glorifies him? So a lot of really sweet things here. I want to encourage you to lean in and hear God's word. So we're going to read this passage. And then we'll just go to start off before we even get to the main point of the passage. We'll read the passage and then just walk through verse by verse, uh, phrase by phrase, just the plain sense of what's in this text. So look at it with me. Matthew 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, 
Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the text we're in this morning. So let's just walk word by word, phrase by phrase, and just see if we can understand the plain sense of what's here. So starting off, it says, when they came to Capernaum. They is Jesus and his disciples. They've been traveling all around the, you know, all, all over the place, and now they land at this place called Capernaum. And in verse 24, it says, the collectors of the two drachma tax. So there's something called the two drachma tax, and there were the collectors of that tax were asking Peter a question. Now, what is the two drachma tax? This was a Jewish tax that was collected yearly for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, two drachmas is, is um, same thing as a half a shekel, and you'll you know why I say this in a minute. Um, but it's equivalent to about two days' labor of a skilled worker. Okay, that's about how much two drachma was, about two days of labor, labor for a skilled worker. Now, like I said, this was a Jewish tax. So this was not a Roman tax enforced by the Romans, but this was a Jewish tax for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. So think about these collectors. These, these tax collectors would not be who you would typically think, like um, unpatriotic, you know, kind of like Matthew was before he was converted. Uh, not these unpatriotic, you know, bound up in the Roman government. Uh, everybody thinks they're evil tax collectors. Not like that. These would have been Jewish tax collectors, very patriotic. They really care about the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the kind of tax that's being uh, collected here. Now, this tax was loosely based off of a passage in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 16. And if you go read that passage, that's the census tax. Exodus 30, verse 11 through 16, it's the census tax. Tax. And what you find out there is a tax of a half a, she a, half a shekel uh, or two, two drachma, same thing. Uh, a tax of half a shekel was to be collected from the Jewish people. And it had sort of a personal and a corporate um, uh, uh, meaning there. So the personal meaning was, if you go read that passage, it was given, this tax was given uh, as an atonement or as a redemption for their life. Okay? And then the collection of that money was used to be sent to the tent of meeting. It says, for the service of the tent of meeting. So, so the money was used for the tabernacle or what would become, not just the tabernacle, what would become the temple. Now I say that this tax that they're asking Peter about in our text, it's loosely based off that in Exodus because in Exodus, this is a, this is a tax that was taken up every census. Every time a census was taken, 
they took up this tax, which was rare in Israel. A census being taken was rare in Israel. Whereas now at this point, it's become this yearly, by the time we get to our text today, it's become this yearly tax for the upkeep of the temple. So kind of loosely based off of the census tax in Exodus 30. And so these collectors, in verse 24, these collectors of the tax, they ask Peter this. They say, does your teacher not pay the tax? So imagine them catching Peter outside somewhere. He's not with Jesus at this moment. And they ask him that question. Does your teacher uh, not pay this tax? Now, it's just sort of a side note. I love it that they refer to Jesus. They're, they're looking at Peter, and they refer to Jesus as your teacher. That's your teacher. And that's one of the most basic things about being a Christian or being a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, same thing. A disciple of Jesus, a Christian, it's the same thing. And one of the most basic things is that Jesus is your teacher, that you sit at his feet, you listen to his word. Uh, John 8, 31, it says, it says, if you abide in my word, Jesus says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so they look at Peter here and they say, your teacher, your teacher. And what they're asking is, does your teacher uh, not pay this tax? Now, there's questions underneath the question. So you, you hear the question that they're asking, but there's questions underneath this. There's meaning underneath this. They're asking, you know, does your teacher, Jesus, does he care about the temple in Jerusalem? Does he care about it? You know, is is Jesus your teacher? Is, is Jesus patriotic to the Jewish nation like us? Most godly and religious people, they pay this tax. But what about Jesus? Is Jesus, is he godly and religious like them? Does he pay this tax? These are questions that are underneath their question here. And in verse 25, Peter gives them an answer. He says, yes. Yes, he does. You see that in verse 25. Now, we don't know why Peter answered that way. We don't know if he had seen Jesus pay this tax in the past, maybe. Uh, we don't know if they had talked about, you know, you know, Jesus had told him his views on this. We don't know if that's the case. Or if Peter's just doing like he often has done. He's just kind of on a whim, like, oh, yeah, yeah, godly people pay this tax. Yes, he pays the tax. Of course he does, you know. We don't know why, but Peter answers, yes, Jesus does pay this, uh, this temple tax here. And then verse 25, look at it. It says, and when he came into the house, and when he came into the house, so he was outside of the house and Jesus is in this house. And now Peter's headed in. You know, he's already told him, yes, Jesus pays this tax. And now he's headed into the house to confirm with Jesus, Jesus, you pay this tax, right? Um, and you can just imagine the tax collectors just in tow right behind him, right? They're there to collect the tax. Does your teacher pay the tax? Yes, they pay the tax. All right, we're going in. All right, well, they're going to go collect the tax. You imagine Peter and the tax collector showing up at the house. They bust into the house, and Jesus is there. Verse 25, look at it. It says, Jesus spoke to him first. Man, this is beautiful. Sometimes, I mean, you, you really do. So much about studying the word of God. You need to slow down. When you're come, especially coming through the Gospels. And so much of, of, of reading God's word, reading through the Gospels, it's not just, hey, here's a lesson, now go do this thing. It's here's Christ, worship Jesus. 
Worship Jesus over what you see here. And man, this little phrase, uh, it really did it for me this week as I was studying. It says, Jesus spoke to him first. So, he, so Peter busts in, right? And he's got something on his mind. Does Jesus pay this tax? Yeah, Jesus pays this tax. And before Peter even has a chance to ask the question, or before the tax collectors have a chance to ask the question directly to Jesus, it says Jesus speaks up first. And he begins to teach them, teach Peter about how to think about taxes. Um, I just want you to try to imagine Peter for a moment. Just imagine him as he walks in with this question on his mind, this affirmation that you pay that tax, right, Jesus? He's got that on his mind. And before he even gets it out, Jesus answers him first. Before he hears a word, and Peter's thinking, man, he knows, he knows what's on my mind before I even voice it. This phrase here is beautiful. Jesus spoke to him first. Now, we've already seen Jesus do that sort of thing at least twice in Matthew already. At least twice. Uh, Matthew 9, 4. Remember when Jesus looked at the guy and said, son, your sins are forgiven? And the scribes were over there thinking, man, he's a blasphemer. And then it says in that verse, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Jesus knowing their thoughts, and he begins to deal with them. Or Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, the exact same phrase. The Pharisees are, are, are having these wicked thoughts about Jesus. And it says, Jesus knowing their thoughts, and he addresses their thoughts. They don't even voice the thought. He just addresses what they're thinking. You imagine the shock of this. And now here's Peter. And it happens to him. He's got something on his mind. And somehow Jesus knows about it. Now this is a display. This is um, the supernatural knowledge, the omniscience of Jesus just flowing out, of, seeping out of a human. Because he's fully God and he's fully man. Um, there was a, a situation in John chapter 1, if you remember this, where Nathaniel gets introduced to Jesus. Do you remember that? And, and Nathaniel gets introduced to Jesus, and Jesus said something that reads his mail, right? And, and Nathaniel says this, how do you know me? And you imagine how many people did that in the life of, you know, people had interactions with Christ. How does this man know, how's he, how's he reading me like this? He says, how do you know me? And then Jesus, this in John 1, Jesus answers Nathaniel, and he goes further. He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see, this ability is, is of Christ to know your thoughts. This omniscience of Christ is revealing something about the divine nature of Jesus. There's a lot in that phrase. Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus spoke to Peter first. This is the, the divine nature of Christ. Uh, just a few verses that, that are so sweet to consider on this. Uh, Psalm 44, verse 21. Would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart. That's God. He knows the secret of the heart. Psalm 139, verse 2. You know when I sit down, he's looking to the Lord. God, you know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You know my thoughts from afar. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it all together. 
Amos 4.13, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what his thought is. And now here we see a human, Jesus a human, showing this divine knowledge. As he speaks to Peter first, he knows his thoughts. He knows the conversations that happen when he's not even around. Beautiful stuff about Christ. I imagine that Peter was amazed by this. And I want us to be amazed by it with him. Now, in verse 25, still in verse 25, um, Jesus addresses him first and then he poses a question to Peter. Look at the question he poses to Peter here. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons? Or from others. So he starts off with uh, this phrase. What do you think, Peter? What do you think? Now you can actually search that word even here in Matthew. And you'll see it pop up again and again. What do you, what do you think? Jesus asked that question a lot. What do you think? And he always asked that question when he's getting ready to give a lesson. Right? So, so like you can go read Matthew 18, 12. It's just right here. I'll, I'll read it. It says, uh, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, you see what he's doing? That's what that phrase is. So the first thing he says to Peter, Peter, what do you think? Because he's getting ready to teach Peter and the others that are listening a lesson here. Now, just like I said earlier, this is a basic foundation of being a Christian, of being a disciple. Jesus is your teacher. If you're really a Christian, it affects the way you think. The way you think. What do you think? It really does affect the way you think. Romans 12.2 describes the Christian life as being transformed by the renewal of your mind. What do you think? It's the basic of being a Christian. The, transform, the transformation of and the renewing of your mind. So he says, what do you think? So Jesus isn't going to let this tax question go by without teaching a deeper spiritual lesson. Peter, Simon, what do you think here? And then he asked that question. From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? The kings of the earth, what do they take tax from? From their sons? Or is it from others? Now the question is not hard to understand, right? So all over the earth, kings take taxes from people, right? That happens all over the earth. Kings take taxes from their citizens of their kingdom, their people, in order to run the kingdom. The question is... Do they, do they tax their own children? Do their children get taxed or is it others in the kingdom that get taxed? That's an easy question to understand, right? And so he asked, he asked Peter this question. Do the children of the king have to pay the taxes? And so Peter, in verse 26, gives the obvious answer. If you look at it right there in verse 26, it says, And when he said, from others... So Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter's answer is, no, no, not the son. Of course, the, of course the king's children don't pay the tax. It's others that pay the taxes. So he, he gives that, uh, Peter gives that obvious answer. And in verse 26, Jesus is going to immediately, I mean, right after he says that. Of course, you know, it's not the children that pay the tax. It's the others that pay the tax. And as soon as he says that, Jesus is going to give us 
the main point, the heart of the lesson that he's teaching in this passage. And look at what he says in verse 26. Jesus, Jesus, said, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Then the sons are free. And I don't want to read too much into it, but you can almost see him wink at that moment. Or smile real big. Uh, hey, Peter, let me ask you something. I, you know, he knows he's coming in with that tax question. Hey, let me ask you something. The kings of the earth, who do they take taxes from? The sons or from others? He says, oh, from others. And you just see the smile. So the sons are free. Okay? The sons are free. Now, what is Jesus insinuating here? Uh, he's insinuating that because he, Jesus, is the son, the son of God, he is free. He's the son. The taxes go into the temple. He's the son of the owner of the temple. Who owns the temple? God does. My father owns that temple. He's free from this tax. That's the idea. He's free from the temple tax. And then not only that, but his followers, his disciples are the sons or the children of God that are free. They're free from this tax. Now, how do we know that's what he's insinuating? Well, the, the next verse tells you. So, think about, so, you know, I call it the however, the however phrase. If you look at verse 27, he says, however, and he's essentially going to say, but we'll go ahead and pay the tax so they won't be offended. So think, think about that, how that flows. Uh, so the sons are free, right? Yeah, yeah, the sons are free. However, so we don't offend them, we'll go ahead and pay the tax. So what he's insinuating is, I don't have to pay this tax. I'm the son of God. You, these guys don't have to pay this tax. They are sons and daughters of God. But we'll go ahead and pay it. Lest they be offended. Now the major lesson here is wrapped up in that phrase. The sons are free. However. The sons are free. However. And we're going to come back to that. But let's finish out this plain sense here in verse 27. So in verse 27, as you keep reading, we see the miraculous way, and I mean miraculous way, that Jesus actually pays this tax. Um, it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, the temple belongs to my father. I'm a son. I don't have to pay this tax. But look, to, so as not to offend you, I'll go ahead and pay it and watch how my father provides. <laughs> and in verse 27, you get watch how my father provides. Look at it here. However, not to give offense to them, he tells Peter. So what does he tell Peter here? Look at it. Go to the sea. Imagine Peter getting this instruction. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Remember, this is the half shekel tax or two drachmas. So a shekel would be four drachmas. It paid for Jesus and Peter, right? Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. So think about how this landed on Peter, right? I mean, he's probably already floored. Is Jesus insinuating that I'm a son of the king that's free from the tax? <laughs> you know, he just, you know, just referred to me that way. And, and then now you got, oh, but we'll go ahead and pay it, Peter. Go, you know, and he's used to fishing, but probably not uh, for taxes. Go to the sea, cast a hook, fish is going to come up, coins in his mouth, pay it. So just, the, how did it land on the tax collectors? They're listening. 
When Peter went to obey Jesus, what do you think the tax collectors did? <laughs> Followed him, right? Seriously? <laughs> you gonna pay the taxes like this? And and uh, and you just imagine this group, maybe even more, maybe Peter, tax collectors, maybe even more people. They're gathered up watching. You know, it's like first fishing show, right? They're watching this guy. He's he's about to fish and get tax money out of the fish's mouth to pay it. And Jesus just said that this would happen. This is amazing stuff. It's beautiful. It shows the sovereignty of Jesus. He's the sovereign Lord over all things. He's even over fish and over dropped coins. He's the Lord of providence. You imagine what had to take place. Some poor soul had to drop his coin in the water. He dropped it somewhere. Maybe he was really, really angry about that. He had no idea that the God of providence, the sovereign Lord of all, was going to use that to display his glory. Just a drop coin. <laughs> and, then he, and, then, and then some dumb fish had to grab it thinking it was food and hold it in his mouth and just happened to be there when Peter put the hook in and happened to grab the hook. And man, he's, this, is the, this is the sovereignty of Christ. I mean, just pause for a moment and think, how silly, brothers and sisters, how silly for us to worry and be anxious over the things of this life as if Jesus isn't in control, isn't in control of it all. Jesus orchestrates all of this. And it's beautiful. Don't miss it. Now, verse 27, and I just want to mention this to you. This is something that a lot of the commentaries mention as you read through them. I love commentaries. Sometimes they say some really dumb stuff and sometimes they say really great stuff. But I love reading them. It makes you think. But in verse 27, we don't actually get record of him going and, and actually doing what Jesus said right here. So you don't actually get a record of the, the, um, the miracle itself, you know, real time. Right? You get Jesus telling him to do it, but you don't actually, it, you know, it doesn't tell us. And then Peter went and did this, and here's what happened. You don't actually get a record here in this gospel of the miracle itself. Now, some, some commentators had some pretty dumb stuff to say about that, okay? Um, so an example would be, they said, well, maybe Jesus was just speaking uh, symbolically. He was really saying to Peter, Peter, uh, your fishing work can help pay our taxes, you know? Man, that ain't going to fly. <laughs> that ain't right. Some people, and this is your unbelieving, you know, your, your unbelieving folks, uh, would say, oh, this is, this is, this is just um, some sort of a, an addition. This is just too crazy to be true, which is just ridiculous. Like, yeah, walking on water, that's probably happening. But, you know, this is just too crazy. And that's like the mindset they're, you know, taking into it. I think I see a clear reason why we don't get the actual record of the miracle happening. And I want to share that with you. Matthew doesn't give us the full account of it playing out because the main point of this passage, which you always need to be asking yourself, right? What's the point of this text? There's a lot of beautiful things here, but what's the main thing? Why is this written? The main point of this text is not the miracle, but it's the lesson that Jesus taught through this. Or the way one commentator said it, he, just kind of a pithy way, if you like that, to remember things, is he said, it's not about the act it's about the fact. Okay, so it's not about the act of the miracle, but the point of the text 
And why we don't get the following out of the miracle is because the point of the text is the lesson that Jesus just taught. Hey, you remember that? Remember what he said to Peter? He says, hey, Simon, what do you think? He's getting ready. He's geared up. He's about to teach a lesson from this thing. And that's where we need to sit and understand it's the main point of this passage. And so that's what we're about to do. We're about to come back to the main point of the passage, the lesson that Jesus is teaching. Okay? Now, the main point is this. I said it a moment ago. The sons are free. However, you can wrap it up in those two phrases. The sons are free. However. Now, if you start unpacking what Jesus meant when he said the sons are free, and then he said, however, if you start unpacking that, you see some rich truth there. There's some truth in that about about Jesus' identity as the son of God, about his followers' identity as sons and daughters of God. Some truth about how the, the family of God, the children of God, even though they're free, how they live out that freedom in this world. However, some rich truth here. So I want us to consider that main lesson under, um, under that phrase, but sort of under two headings. Those two headings. The sons are free, number one. And number two, however... The sons are free, however, and we'll kind of consider it like that. So let's start with the sons are free, okay? This phrase, the sons are free. In this event, Jesus is revealing himself to be the son of God. Think about it. Early on in Matthew 17, what did we see in the transfiguration? The father made it known. The father said, that's my beloved son. Listen to him. And now here in this passage, Jesus said, the sons are free. He's making himself known to be the son of God. So Jesus, as the son of God, is free from this tax. And the, and the bigger picture, again, it gets outside of this tax. The bigger picture is that he is the son of God and the world has no claim on him. Nothing in this world has a claim on him. He is God the son. Now, I just want us to meditate and think on that for a minute because that's, I mean, that's worth all of our time and more. But we need to at least give some significant time to it. Jesus is the Son of God, therefore the world has no claim on him. Let's think about what that means, that he is the Son of God. He's God the Son, meaning he is the second person of the Trinity. He's the second person of the one and only one true God. Okay, he, He's been in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit since before creation, for all of eternity. He has no beginning. He's before all things, and he is before the creation of this world. Son of God, and they're asking him to pay a tax. And that's what you ought to feel. They're asking him to pay this tax. All right, keep going. Th think about... Think about God the Son at creation. Okay, that, I just talked to you about before creation. What about at creation? Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created through Him, through God the Son, through Jesus, and for Him. All things were created through Him and for Him. So all of creation owes its very existence to the Son of God. How are you going to pay the tax, you owe? You see how ridiculous that is? 
All of creation was made. It exists for what purpose? To glorify the Son of God. And, and, you, just, and you just imagine, how would you like to be these guys showing up and coming to him saying, hey, you going to pay that tax? Son's free. Think about God the Son whenever man fell into sin. When man rebelled into sin in Genesis chapter 3. When, when, uh, when mankind was plunged into sin through Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, this massive need was exposed. We need to be saved. We need to be redeemed. Adam and Eve have sinned and all that sin and death has been passed down to us. So there's this massive need. We need to be redeemed from hell. And already, God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit had already established a plan of redemption. That the Father was going to, he's going to send the Son into the world to take on human flesh. And the Son's going to accomplish redemption by dying on a cross for sinners. And the Holy Spirit is going to apply to us as he opens men's eyes to the glory of God the Son made flesh. And here's these tax collectors standing before that God the Son incarnate. You pay the tax. <laughs> it just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? You're going to pay the tax? Think about this. And this really gets to the heart of the reason for this tax. Sin enters the world. It's already the plan that God the Son is going to take on human flesh and die for sinners. And all of our Bible from, from Genesis on is exposing this, this redemption plan of God to redeem a people for himself. And one of the things we get is the building of a tabernacle or the building of a temple. What was the purpose? This tax they're asking Jesus about is about up, upkeeping the temple. What was the purpose of this tabernacle, this temple? We could go read it in Exodus. At the end of Exodus, the last half, we get, we get the, um, all this detail about the building of the tabernacle, which kind of mirrors what's to come in the building of the temple. And what you get in that is I, God is teaching the people of God, this is how you can be restored into my presence. I'm going to be here. A house for God. Now, a house can't contain God. It's meant to teach you something. Here's a house for God. Here's how... Mankind is going to be restored back into the presence of God. A tabernacle, a temple is meant to teach that. So you get to the end of Exodus, and finally the tabernacle is built, and the glory of God fills that thing, and guess what? It says nobody can enter. Nobody can go in. Nobody can go into the presence of God. What are we going to do? There's the place, but nobody can be restored into his presence. What are we going to do? Next book of the Bible is what? Leviticus. By the blood of another. A sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice. Only by the blood of another can you enter in and be restored into the presence of God. So listen to me. Everything about the tabernacle, everything about the temple is meant to point to God the Son taking on human flesh and dying as a sacrifice for sinners so we can be restored into his presence. It's all about him. And then the guys show up at, his, at the house. Hey, uh, you going to do your part? For the upkeep of that temple? It's just crazy. And so Jesus says, the sons are free. Jesus was free from this tax. In fact, nothing in all of creation has any hold or any kind of claim on him because he is the son. 
Now that's Jesus. What about his followers? Now it's clear that, that also the sons are free means his followers, right? Because twice when it says sons, it's plural. He says it twice in our text in Matthew 17. Sons is plural there. And when Jesus pays the tax, he didn't just pay for himself. He pays for himself and for Peter too, right? So wrapped up in the sons are free includes his followers or his disciples. So think about that. The followers of Jesus are free from this tax too. Bigger picture. This world has no claim on disciples of Jesus Christ. This world has no hold, no claim at all on the disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and if you're here and you're a believer, I want you to be encouraged by this. We're going to talk about it a little bit. Look, think about the encouragement of that. You are, you are not of this world. You're in this world, John 17. You're in this world, but also John 17. But you're not of this world. You have an otherworldly existence. This world has no claim on you. The sons are free, he says. Now, why is it true that the sons, even the, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, why are they free? Because every Christian disciple is a child of the Father. Now, don't let that sentence fly by you unnoticed. Every Christian disciple is a child, a son, or a daughter of God. Now, surely that's on Peter's mind, right, man? Did he, he, just, did he just say, I'm a son of the king? The sons are free? Did he just say, I'm a son in this kingdom? It's a beautiful thing. One of the major features of Jesus' earthly ministry is teaching this very truth. Teaching the fatherhood of God. That his followers are, they're not just citizens of the kingdom, they're a certain kind of citizen. They're children in the kingdom. Children of God. This is amazing stuff. This is the doctrine of adoption. Beautiful stuff. The doctrine, think, think about we come through the Gospel of Matthew, and he's teaching them to pray like this, Our Father. Our Father. And if you trace that out throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus teaching that sort of thing to his disciples over and over again. Think of God as your Father. Because when Jesus saves a soul, he makes them children. Beautiful doctrine of adoption into the family of God. Now, we've talked about this before, that as you think about your salvation, if you think about justification, it's beautiful. You mean when you had faith in Jesus Christ, when you put your trust in him, that justification teaches that the judge of all the earth leaned forward on his bench and looked at you and said, justified, righteous, innocent, not guilty. That's beautiful. Justification is beautiful. And even more beautiful to add to that is that when the judge takes the criminal that's just had their, their slate wiped clean, and he adopts them as sons and daughters into the family. It's like going from the law court to the living room. It's a beautiful thing to be called children of God. 1 John 3, 1 uh, uh, reminds us how beautiful that is, this is. It says, what love, I mean, have you thought about this in a while? What love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God? The sons are free. That we should be called children, a son of God and a daughter of God. It's a beautiful thing. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you live in this world. 
That's John 17, 18. Jesus said he sent you into this world. But you're not of this world. That's John 17, 14. The world hates you because you're not of this world. So you're in this world, but you're not of this world. Now, what do we mean we're not of this world? You're a child of God. Listen, you're a child of God. If you're in Christ here, you're a child of God and the world has no hold on you. You're a son. You're a daughter. And the world has no claim on you. This is beautiful stuff. You have an otherworldly existence. And the sooner you realize this, the better. When you realize this and you own, you know and you own this truth, that you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, man, it changes everything about your life. No need to, no need to hold on. My, my joy, my satisfaction and joy is not wrapped up in anything in this world. The most precious thing to me in this life, my joy is not wrapped up in that. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God through Jesus Christ crucified. That's beautiful. And the, and the quicker you hold to that, and the more you own that, it will absolutely change your life, change, change the way you think, and change the way you live. Now, so the sons are free. The sons are free. But right here, Jesus says, however. So here's these heavenly realities. Jesus is the son of God. His followers are sons and daughters in the kingdom. Heavenly realities. You're not of this world. However, he says here, however, you are still in this world. The sons are free. And this, this however statement shows us that Jesus does not use this freedom in the way a sinful man would. The sons are free. However, the way a sinful man would use freedom, Jesus doesn't use it that way. His freedom or his rights don't take first place right here. There are higher purposes or, or causes that, that would cause him to lay down his freedom, lay down his life, for something else. This is at the heart of the gospel. That Jesus lays aside his right to glory. And dies a humiliating death for sinners. It's an interesting lesson. So if we look at Jesus' example. If we, if we think deeply about Jesus' example here. We get some, some good instruction. How do we live as not of this world? Free from it. Free from it. And yet still in the world. Well, think about this. Jesus said, I wasn't bound to pay. The sons are free. He's not bound to pay this tax. So then why does he? The phrase here says, however, not to give offense to them. So why do he pay it? If he wasn't bound to pay the tax, why do he pay it? So as not to give offense to them. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not, and we know this from the Gospels, he's not like so many people in our day that are absolutely obsessed with being accepted by men so that they have an absolute phobia of offending anybody. Jesus wasn't like that. It's very clear. I call it the phobia of offense. He was not scared of offense. Uh, people that are like, think about just a couple of chapters before. Matthew 15, verse 12. Uh, it says, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? 
And in this situation, he doesn't say, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. I don't want to offend him. Rather, what he says is he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. So he's not obsessed with, oh, no, I just can't offend somebody. He's not like that. People that do that, they tend to disregard the truth altogether so as not to offend somebody. Or they tend to water the truth down by just nuancing it to death. So, so that they can be accepted by as many people as possible. Jesus was not like that. He spoke the truth, even if it meant being misunderstood, or even if it meant offending someone. So why here, why in this passage, is Jesus trying to avoid an offense? Why does it seem like he's trying to avoid offending people? Well, I, there's a lesson to learn here. Jesus is not interested in unnecessarily offending people. That's not the point. In fact, he's shown us here that we ought to be willing to bend and yield in some pretty intense ways for the sake of a higher purpose. For the sake of a higher purpose. So here's the principle. This is the principle I believe we're seeing Jesus live out here that we need to grasp. Here's the principle. It's this. There is a time to accept being offensive. And there's a time to avoid it. For higher purposes. There's a time to accept being offensive. Matthew 15 verse 12. And there's a time to avoid it. For higher purposes. Matthew chapter 17. Now Jesus lived this out perfectly. And our, uh, us digging into this passage. Ought to encourage us to cry out to God for wisdom. For, for wisdom and courage to live it out like Christ did. As best we can. Okay, But this is the principle. There's a time to accept being offensive. A time to avoid it. For higher purposes. And what I mean by higher purposes is avoiding some sort of an offense out of this higher purpose of love for somebody or the advancement of the gospel. There's other higher purposes like that. I don't mean avoiding offense because I'm, I'm so obsessed with not, not offending somebody. I just want, I want to be liked. I have the fear of man. I want to be liked by everybody so bad I'm unwilling to offend. We don't mean that. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to, to dwell on this lesson for, a for just a moment. There's a time to accept being offensive, and there's a time to avoid it for higher purposes. Um, here's, here's a way, and this is almost like homework. I'm going to mention it, but it's almost like homework. Here's a way to, to meditate and think on this together, to get some wisdom. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you say, okay, this text, this happened, in this text, this happened, and how do you reconcile those things? I want to give you four places to consider in God's Word that you need to think through how they fit together. And when you do, I think you'll get at this principle of there's a time to avoid, excuse, there's a time to accept being offensive, and there's a time to avoid it for higher purposes. So let me give you, the, let me just refer to those four, okay? So number one, I want to encourage you to compare Galatians 2.5 Galatians 2.5 to our passage today. Matthew 17, verse 24 through 27. So in Galatians 2.5, let me read this to you. <clears throat> it says this. It's Paul writing. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We did not yield to them in submission. Not even for a moment. 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What we see in that text is there is a time to be absolutely unyielding, unsubmissive in Galatians 2.5. And yet there's a time to yield. James 3.17 says this about wisdom. Uh, the wisdom from above is willing to yield. And we see that in the text here with Jesus. Jesus, that tax has no claim on him. However, keep from offending here, sure, I'll pay the tax. Now, why unyielding in one situation and yielding in another situation? In that first situation, the truth of the gospel is at stake. So that the truth of the gospel might continue on with you, we're not yielding for a second. That's the time to be firm, to be stiff, and be unmovable in that moment. And yet here in our situation in Matthew 17, just pay the tax. You got bigger fish to fry. Just, just, just pay the tax. Okay? So I think that's a helpful passage to consider. Second one, I want to encourage you to compare... 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to Galatians 2, verse 11 through 14. You remember these? Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and Galatians 2, verse 11 through 14. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 20, Paul says this. He says, I become all things for all men that I might win some. He says, to the Jew, I become as a Jew in order that I might win the souls of Jews. You catch that? But then you go read Galatians 2, verse 11 uh, through 14, and Peter is becoming like a Jew. And, he, and he's doing that. The, the Jews show up. He stops eating with the Gentiles. He's kind of becoming like the Jew. And man, Paul lays into him with a heavy rebuke. Heavy rebuke. So what's going on here? Why in one situation... It's Paul commending this idea of becoming like a Jew to win Jews. In another situation, to become like a Jew gets a heavy rebuke. What's the difference here? Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, you've got this higher purpose for the salvation of soul, to win a lost soul. Yeah, I'll become like a Jew that I might win this soul. Whereas if you go read the passage in Galatians 2, what was Peter's motivation? The fear of man. He demeaned the Gentiles, and because of the fear of these Jews, he started doing things like they did. And it's a wrong reason to do it. So he got rebuked. It wasn't for a higher purpose. All right, let me give you a third one. I want to encourage you to compare 1 Corinthians 8 to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Again, we're working through how do you... What do you see in Jesus' example? He's, the son's free. The sons are free. However, we'll, we'll pay it not to offend them. How do you understand that? Well, number three, compare 1 Corinthians 8 to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 3. Now, what you see there in 1 Corinthians 8 is um, this Paul saying, yeah, yeah, we've got freedom to eat this certain kind of food. We've got this freedom to do that. We have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But man, if 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 eating this causes my brother to stumble, the weaker brother to stumble, I will abstain from it out of love for my brother. So the higher purpose is love for my brother, love for the weaker brother. Therefore, I, I will encourage you to abstain from this food out of love for them. Put aside my right for love for them, a higher purpose. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But you get to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, and the teaching is... People are teaching others, you must, you know, to be godly, you must abstain from certain foods. And Paul says, that's doctrines of demons. 
Now, why in 1 Corinthians 8 is he saying, yeah, yeah, abstain from this food for love for your brother. But in 1 Timothy 4, he's saying, man, they're teaching you to abstain from foods. That's doctrines of demons. What's going on here? And what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 8, there's a higher purpose involved. Love for that weaker brother. Care for them. Therefore, yeah, yeah, man, I'll put away that food. I don't care. I don't have to hold up my rights, hold up my freedom. I don't have to do that. Love for them. I'll do something else. So you can, you know, don't give an offense. But in 1 Timothy 3, you got somebody in coming in and they're laying this unbiblical standard on the backs of other Christians. If you're really godly, you do this. And in that situation, he says, no, I'll be firm. I'll be unyielding and firm. Don't care who gets offended. Last one. These are all just for your, this homework. Number four. Now, this one's specifically towards governing authorities. And that. That means something because this is kind of what we're dealing with in Matthew uh, 17, right? We're dealing with governing authorities and taxes and these kind of things. Towards governing authorities, there is a time to be unyielding and willing to offend, right? Think about Acts chapter 5, verse 29. They commanded the apostles to stop preaching the gospel. The apostles say to them, First of all, they just don't obey them. They just keep preaching the gospel. And they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. When men's commands uh, are confronting or going against God's commands, we go with God and not with men. We ought to obey God rather than men. There's a time to be unyielding. But the general disposition towards the governing authorities ought to be from Christians a yieldedness, a submission, I want to read a verse to you in 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. And it really seems as you read through this text, and you'll see it as I read it, as if Peter had in mind what happened with Jesus when he said, the sons are free, however we pay the tax. And it's as if he's got that in mind when he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read verse 13 through 17. Listen, Listen to this. See if you can hear Or see where Peter might have had what Jesus did in mind. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Your submission is for the Lord's sake. Not for them, for the Lord's sake. To every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are what? Free. Sons are free. Live as people who are free. However, right, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Isn't that interesting? What do you want me to do? You want me to live as free or live as a servant of God? You want to live as free or as a slave? Which one? And right here he says both. Live as one who is free, not using your freedom as a cover-up. You can see him thinking about Christ in that. The sons are free, Jesus said. However, and he pays a tax. And he's telling them here this general disposition of a yieldedness, a submission to governing authorities as those who are free and yet as servants of God. Now this is true freedom. Uh, True freedom is not what the world tells you. Man, 
you know, forget those governing authorities. I do what I want to do. That's not, that's not freedom. That's actually slavery to yourself. Slavery to selfish desire. True freedom is what we see Jesus doing. I'm unbound by your law. I owe you nothing. I owe you nothing. But out of love for you and for the glory of God, my, my father told me to, yeah, pay the tax. This is true freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this text of Scripture, Lord, and letting us meditate on it together. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Every little detail of you revealing yourself to us, God, of you revealing Christ to us, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to worship over every detail. And God, please teach us to live in this freedom that you have bought for your children. And Lord, help us to do it not as a sinful world thinks about freedom, but in the example you gave us. Thank you so much for your help. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.